Monster X Radio's On the Shoulders of Giants, Talking Old Timers with Thomas, Thomas Steenberg, the one, the only, and he is here in the studio with me. How are you, Thomas? I'm doing just fine, Julie. I just lit up Krakatoa and looking forward to our 40th episode here. Yeah, it's amazing, 40 episodes, and... Mm -hmm. um, I just can't believe we've been doing it that long. It doesn't feel like it, you know. And uh, a lot of good shows, a lot of good uh, topics. And uh, let's let's hope there's another, at least another 40 to go. Roger that. Sounds cool to me. I'm game for it. Well, you know, um, most of our listeners who listened to the last show know that we have our guest back uh, for part two because he had so much to share that we just couldn't get it done in an hour. Um, we're going to have Dan Nedrolo back. Well, you know, welcome back, Dan, and I, we really appreciate you taking time to, to come back for part two. A lot of really cool stuff we talked about in the first episode. And if you're listening to this and you haven't heard Part one, I encourage you to go back and listen to that before you delve into this one. So, Dan, um, right before we started the show, you and I were talking about uh, a little project that you guys have going on, you and your research team. And I was, I was hoping maybe you could touch on that for us a little bit and you know let everybody know about your research team again, the name of your team, and what you guys are up to. Absolutely. I'd be glad to. Uh, first of all, it's uh, Ozark Mountain Sasquatch, and they're based in Missouri. Uh, we have uh, myself and Randy Harrington are out of state, but we're there when we need to be. And uh, Randy and Shane are the field guys, and uh, Gary Schutte is a uh, incredible whiz online, and so he's taking care of documentaries and uh you know, computer-related, and then I am a biologist looking at behavior and methods and techniques and anything I can glean from um, networking to bring into the team, and then I seem to get along pretty well with uh, the, <laughs> shall we say, when I'm there, I don't seem to be distracting too much, so it, it works pretty well. I've had a rock thrown at me, and I've had vocalizations, and I've had uh, got to see some visuals, so that was all good. And they have come into camp a number of times. 
They're in the field tonight and last night, and they have the documentary team there, and they will be in the future making uh, more information available through public video, et cetera. Um, basically what we're doing is we've got a couple of guys that actually most of us are 24-7. This subject matter is so intriguing, so interesting. It's pretty much what we do. And uh, so it's on our minds constantly. We're constantly networking with other people, getting locations, getting information. And they've got a spot called the 400 down there. Shane uh, came up with, and it has worked out quite well. We've gotten some video documentary, and now there is a expensive drone in the air looking for heat signatures. Uh, our next field exercise where I'll be involved will be in Oklahoma, in the Kimichi Mountains, and specifically that may well be open to the public. So if people are interested, uh, we can check through Andy and Shane and see what kind of openings or how much room there is. Uh, looking to look for more heat signatures and get more information on everything from tracks to vocals to possible nest beds to whatever it might be that we can find field evidence-wise, you know. Um, if you have any questions, Julie or Thomas, feel free, please. Could you just repeat the name of your group again? Sure, Ozark Mountain Sasquatch. And this has been put together in the last five years. And now it is Randy Harrington, uh, lead researcher, investigator, field man, Shane Carpenter, myself, Dan Nedrolo, and Gary Schutte. Well, you tell them all that I really appreciate and love the fact you use the Canadian name rather than the American. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Will do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, very interesting. So this project, you will eventually turn it into a documentary that people can actually watch at some point down the road. Yes. Is that correct? Absolutely. And right now, at the moment, we know we have at least three individuals in the immediate area, one with a nine-and-a-half-inch print, one with a six-and-a-half, and another uh, approximately 14 inches. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of footprints except from the nine-and-a-half-inch individual, and hopefully they'll find more, although we also know that right now there's less cover and the temperatures are colder. So not sure what they're going to find this set, but as the temperatures warm and the foliage comes out, uh, we expect repeat information and re repeat uh, uh, data collection. So we'll see, and we'll keep everybody posted who's interested. Is this oh, yeah, document being made by the group, or is this a film crew making a documentary about the group and its research? You could almost say both. All right. Um, we're looking to get anything associated with the situation documented. So we've got a uh, <clears throat> professional movie producer. We have Alex Merkin. We have uh, Cynthia Hill, who is a producer. Of, uh, she's associated often with uh, race car uh, work. And then her, her uh, specialized photographer, uh, Blair Johnson. And uh, between the three, they're quite amazing, and luckily their personalities fit what we're looking for with regard to a positive, upbeat, flexible personality set, which we tend to think is being read 
by who we're looking for. So step well, by I, step. and I can tell you that sounds very reassuring because one of the experiences I've had over the years with dealing with documentaries from like the BBC or the CBC or some film company is they tell you where they're doing one thing. And then when you actually the finished project, see the finished project, you almost feel like you've been stabbed in the back. <laughs> because Re- regular problem, I think that a lot of people have have experienced, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's so hard to have the right personalities following the right. It's pretty much our way or the highway. And mm-hmm. Shane has been very careful about who he brings in, and. Um, these people just seem they're they're friends they're they're professionals they're amazing and I'll just let it go with that and uh, we feel extremely optimistic about what the future might hold here. Sweet. Well, I look forward yeah. to finding out more as time goes on and definitely keep us posted when um, when it's you know being prepared. Sure. To be released. Sure. So. And I'm sure that Shane or Randy or both would be delighted to uh, work with you uh, on the air so you can grill them with as many questions as you like. That's what I was thinking. Like. Get that yeah. um, release, have, have you all back on as a team. That would be really interesting. Oh, Dan, is there a target release date for this, or is it just going as in, until you feel it's ready? Uh, right now we're just in the initial stages, Thomas. So Roger that. I wouldn't, I, uh, you know, that that's something you'd ask to Shane, and I think Shane would say, "I'm going as we go, and we'll see what we get, and then, then we'll modify, and we'll continue to work to try to get additional." So, you know, we're looking for any every lead and every rock we can flip that gives us more information. Roger that. Fantastic. Well, I know when we uh, were on the last show, we got we got into a little bit of some of the witness reports that you've taken, um, some of the the fact that um, you know the the people that you are contacted with who are eyewitness, I guess you'd say sketch artists. Um, yes. And it was Sabilla and Alex. And um, now I know that uh, they're both very talented women, and you know I've seen some of their their finished work, and it's just amazing uh, how well they are able to bring that to to life. What the people are seeing, you know, and that they trust them enough to to do that. So I wanted to you know get more into some encounter. Um, the, the ones that you have taken, the witnesses you've talked to, and I know that you've had art drawn and other people have drawn from those encounters. So if you would like to share some encounter stories um, and some that you've taken, that would be fantastic. I would be delighted, and I've got a few lined up right here. So Great. I'll, ta- I'll take you to Wisconsin on my first year with the BFRO when I was – really enjoying the fact that I was hanging out and changing with some of the people like John Green, for example, that were writing some of the books that uh, entertained me, entertained my interest to begin with. And uh, one thing led to another, and pretty soon I found myself on, uh, in the field actually trying to find information and uh, 
secondary field evidence or even better yet having an encounter. And the first actually, the first encounter uh, uh, potential field op was actually on oh, on the day that the jets hit. It was that night. And then in the morning I slept in my vehicle. I got up and here, here we had all those incredible things happen. Um, uh, uh, all I can say is that I had some strange vocalizations and I couldn't find any footprints and it just seemed real strange that these these giant primates aren't leaving what we expect to be able to find. In other words, they can run through a forest and virtually, where's the footprints? You'd think something that big and that heavy would constantly be leaving them. But So so that suggests maybe they're watching where they're stepping. In other words, virtually the limestone, the limestone rock series versus mud or things like that. I couldn't find anything in the garden. Um, so I kind of came away from that one scratch, scratching my head. It wasn't long before I took a few more Iowa reports, and I know just the idea. Iowa? You've got to be kidding me. Well, remember, uh-huh. Iowa was surrounded by Minnesota, which has over 1,000 right. timber wolves and over 25,000 black bear, and Wisconsin, which also has 1,000 timber wolves and over 25,000 black bear. So... And, and my buddy, uh, who, Al Sheldon, who I've photographed much of the United States with doing nature and wildlife photography, he caught two timber wolves on ice crossing the Mississippi River one March, um, <laughs> heading for Iowa. So we know that wildlife are using corridors and different dispersals, you know. And uh, so it may take, if, if a black bear shows up in Iowa, it might take five years for the state to even admit, okay, we've got black bear. And now they finally are. Um, what's interesting about the Iowa situation was I ran into a fellow from Floyd County, and we got to talking, and I said, okay, so what experiences did you have? And he said, well, one night I was out fishing, catfishing, with my sister, and we were just enjoying the night, and all of a sudden, here's the dogs up on the hill in the distance, and they're going nuts. And you can hear from one farm to another, these dogs just starting to rip into it vocally. And he said, it wasn't too long before we actually heard somebody in the stream. And we're sitting there kind of, what is going And all of a sudden, this great, big, tall, black man walked out of the forest and walked across the stream, just kept on going like, no problem. His sister, that was the last night his sister ever went fishing. And I'd heard from other people in Iowa, you know why nobody goes fishing here, right? You know why nobody catfishes no more? Oh, why? Why? Because of the big black men that walk the streams at night. And I've had similar people tell me the same thing in Ohio. So that's interesting. Uh, I talked to him further, and he had said that when he was a little boy, his dad called him and his brothers together to a rock quarry. And he said, nobody's going to believe this. I want you guys to see it. So he brought them in. They walked through the sandy areas. They came to a little pond. And there were frog legs kicking in the pond where something had bitten the frog off, but you've got legs kicking. And they're looking at that and happened to notice some small human-like prints. And they followed them up. They went to some big human-like prints. They all stayed together in the trail. 
follow these prints up a hill down into an area that was really, it was like, you don't go there because that's almost, it's not quicksand, but it's almost. And the prints avoided that, went up into the trees, into the hills, and that was it. And the guy said, see, now nobody's ever going to believe that, but I just want you guys to see it. So that's some of the little subtle things that are going on behind the scenes. I've got one Mississippi hmm. River, and I might have mentioned it last time, but I ran into somebody whose brother had been fishing at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he's fishing, and everything's great. And all of a sudden, he happens to look over, and here's obviously a bear. And he's like, okay, now I'm far enough away, and I haven't got any fish, so I'm good. He's watching his bear. All of a sudden, the bear stands up. And he drops his pole, hops in his vehicle, and drives off. Unfortunately, I haven't got an interview with him, but it's one of numerous reports we get up and down the Mississippi River in virtually all the counties. One of my friends had been driving a Twinkie truck at 2 o'clock in the morning in one of the river towns on the Minnesota side, Red Wing specifically, and he was going along and he happened to see this big dude walking along the road. He's like, huh, I don't know. He drove closer and he just noticed he was all in one suit. And as he got closer, he realized it was hair. He accelerated, and that was the end of that. But he said that was over seven feet, and it was wide-shouldered, and it wasn't in a hurry. So what do you do with that? Uh, it was real close to the river as well. So these bluffs and uh, tributary streams certainly seem to have something going on with, uh, you know, with, with reports that continue to go on. I've got one friend who... Worked late at night. She would be till 2 o'clock in the morning or so, and then she would leave for town to go home. And she had to drive about 18 miles. And on this particular road, she noticed that uh, a, a weird bear was by a garbage can every once in a while. First time she saw it, that is one weird-looking bear. Second time she saw it, that's not a bear. Third time she saw it, she saw it seven times in three years. And the third time she saw it, she knew what it was. She said that it was bent over. It would run from the garbage can series and run to some vegetation and hide. And it, when it ran, it was like it was bent over so far that its, that its uh, hands or fists could actually just about reach the ground. It was fast. And what's also interesting is that the location of this particular garbage can aligned with a dry run right underneath the road, approximately a mile from the Mississippi River. So <laughs> with the repeat observation she had, further description, we had pretty wide shoulders that we would expect, or a big trapezius so that the neck muscles cover up any visual obvious neck situation. It uh, looked very bear-like, but a flat face. And these flat faces continue to come up and up. And often the noses are are wide, um, but not necessarily, you know, um, variable, probably like ours. And but but there's things you look for in a lot of these descriptions. So those are some of the Wisconsin, Iowa. Uh, reports that I've taken. The, the first report that I got that really made it interesting was I had a youngster 
probably 19 years old or so, with his buddies. And they were in a county in the western part of Iowa, not far from Minnesota. I forget the name of the county at the moment, but the report's in the BFRO directory publicly. And what's interesting is they were walking a stream bed back to town. They were like five miles out of town. He said, there's this gorilla thing standing behind a tree watching us. Didn't do anything. Just looking at us. We found some skeletons back there. <coughs> but what? Going, he was asking me, what's going on? How come the adults don't believe us? How come our parents think we're nuts? How come? What are these things? Where did they come from? What's going on? And I, I just said, well, generally, they've been associated with the state, usually in the south, southern part of the state, and they're uh, not well known, apparently, and uh, it's a big mystery, and thanks for being part of it, and if anything comes up, let me know, and I'll let you know, too. So that was the last conversation I had with that individual. Um, Moving on, we had a young lady uh, who was in Minnesota visiting relatives. She travels at night or into the night, from Minneapolis area, across Wisconsin, gets into the UP, and she's heading east in the UP of Michigan. That night, it's late. She parks. Her name's Teresa. She's a good friend of mine. haven't been in touch for a long time, but I was in touch with her for over 10 years. And she said, I pulled over into one of those road parkways, and I'm sitting there in the car sleeping, I've got my little one-year-old son with me. It's hot. We've got, you know, nobody's around. We've got the windows rolled down. Everything's good. And she wakes up in the middle of the night. And she's like, oh, my gosh, that kid just loaded his diapers. It's terrible. So she just focuses on that, turns the light on so she can see, and she flips through the kid's diaper. It's clean. It's good. That's not the source of the problem. What's going on? So she puts him back. She leans back, and she's like half awake, and she happens to look over, and here he's just staring out the window. So she looks up right into the face of a, who knows how tall, seven to eight foot male Angora hair, like Angora goat hanging from his head. And he's bent over, and he's got, it's a it's a Volvo station wagon, so it's not a huge vehicle, and he's he's bent over with the palms of his hand on the hood of the vehicle, looking down at her. Not her, but the kid. And she's behind the steering wheel, of course. And she's freaking out, thinking, okay, we're dead. This thing is absolutely huge. It was very manlike. I In the report, which should be available, and I'll make sure you get access to that, there's okay. a detailed look at, at his particular physical look. As far as his behavior, he was interested in the kid. The window was rolled down. He could have easily just grabbed him and gone. Nothing right. like that. She's sitting there just terrified, realizes, wait a minute, I'm in a car. So she flips lights on the car. Yeah, he's not real happy with that, so he actually backs off a little bit. And I don't remember if he, as is often stated, blocks his eyes or what. But anyway, they turned the lights on. She fired the vehicle up. He stood back. She pulled back, and away they went. And so that's another interesting Midwest story. And that's a pretty yeah, that's intriguing horrifying. one. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting was I 
talked to her, one of the last times I talked to her, I said, did you ever tell your child about this? And she said, I was terrified to. I was just terrified to because that's the last thing I needed for him to think his mom is nuts. And eventually she did tell him. And he was quite appreciative, I understand. So that's an interesting one. One that I've been, should, should I talk about the uh, Texas one right now with the uh, prediction? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a beauty. Yeah. Okay, basically, that's uh, report number 8547. And it's, I call it a Texas hog predation. It's, uh forget the name of the river, but all the information is there. Basically, what we have is we have a hunter 25 feet up in the air, looking out, waiting for sunrise. He's hog hunting. And he's done some baiting, so he's got some hog action. And they're about 50 yards out. And when the sun's starting to come up, he's starting to hear the vocals you'd expect from hogs. So he's happy. Everything's going good. As, as there's more light coming into the situation, off to his right... He's got a, uh, I've got some of this written down. He's got uh, a three by nine scope and 80 yards out, he sees something that he can't identify and it's big and it's dark. And so he puts his rifle on the thing and turns it up to nine power. And the first thing he's thinking is that is really, really, really shocking. It's covered with hair, about three inches long. 78 feet, female, you can see breasts, but they're not like patties. They're much smaller, so when she moves, there's very little movement. And they are covered with hair, except for the points. And uh, it's what I found extremely interesting was if you look at gorilla pictures, and I'm not saying these uh, that the target species are gorillas, but what I am saying is they may share some characteristics that are somewhat similar. In this case, the ears seemed really small for the size of the head. And I've seen pictures that people have taken, uh, supposedly of Sasquatch, that indicated that as well. So that was a kind of a interesting point for me. He said that the face was human-like, and uh, it, uh, but he noticed from the hand that the thumb was set further back. And what basically happened was this thing was going after the hogs. And I'm going to talk to Craig Woolheater about getting to talk to this man and eventually sitting down and with him and, and illustrating this because I really want to do that. But anyway, what happened was this thing was bounding between 5 and 10 feet between trees, getting closer to the pigs. Once it reached 30 yards up, dropped down to all four. So it was landing at the base of these trees virtually silently. So during the time that it was making these movements, you're still hearing squirrels, you're still hearing wildlife, you're still hearing the hogs doing their thing. Okay, 30 yards away, 90 feet, it drops to all fours and it leaps. And it covers 15 yards in the first leap. And remember, we're talking something that's seven to eight feet tall, and females are often really blocky, heavy. So this thing is full of power, if this is anywhere at all accurate. In the second leap, she, she's jumping, <laughs> and she, she screams, like an attack scream. And that spreads the hogs all over. And she grabs one and literally slaps it up into the air and slams it into a tree. And in four seconds, it's dead, because she's pounding it with her 
knuckles or fists, oh. and he he's actually able to hear bones crunching. And she drops this thing at the base of the tree, and there's three vocalizations. The first one is a, a four whoops with a gur in front of it. The second are three whoops, and the along those lines. And then it stops, and it opens its mouth because it's looking over toward him. And she looks at him, and he's got his rifle on her, and she gives this her sound. I'm guessing something along the lines of a type sound. And showing your teeth with open mouth. She picks up the pig, roughly 120, 125 pounds, and picks it up like somebody pick up a sack of potatoes, and off she goes. Intriguing? Wow. Now, was this at night? This was in the morning. When the sun this was is in the morning, out. okay. Yeah, so it was light out, time. and wow. And he had the advantage of that scope. So he was in a position to be able to see something most of us can't see detail-wise. So, and it's a heck of a report, and it's number, uh, as I mentioned, it is number 4206. So, oh, I'm sorry, wrong, 8547. Okay, the next one I was going to tell you about was a fellow that I interviewed in Texas, and he was a working man. His wife was a real estate agent, and she he was um, on his way to work, Houston, uh, Sam Houston Forest area, Lake Conroe. And he's driving along, and all of a sudden, it's time to go. He's a coffee drinker. And there happened to be, past the bridge, a little path that goes from from the road to the lake where all the fishermen use it. He had that in mind because there's a four-foot dip there. I don't know if it's four feet, but it's a dip. And uh, basically, he's thinking that's where I'll go because he's apparently very conservative and concerned and didn't want anybody to, you know, didn't want to offend anybody when he had to uh, do what he had to do. So he's, he goes over there, and he's about to drop down into that, but he's, the first thing he notices is this incredible odor. And this is an interview that I had. And this odor was just knock your socks off. And he said it was too strong to be fecal or urine. It was something else. And it was just a horrible odor. And as he got closer, all of a sudden this thing stands up and it was right where he was going to go. And it right by his head, there's a sapling. It grabs a sapling and it shakes it, sidesteps him and walks right by. And it goes up past his truck, crosses the road, goes up into the pine trees up on top of the hill. And he, with the ambient light that he had from the truck, he was able to see it better. And he just did not feel there's any way this could be a human. Its forearms were amazing. They were bigger around than a big coffee can diameter. And uh, uh, just the odor, the muscle, and the uh, width of the shoulders uh, was very shocking to him. So now what's interesting here is he was working with one of the NFL football players and played football and was used to working with big people. And he had never seen anything like this before. Uh, Also interesting, I asked him about a particular player that he was working with because the Green Bay Packers drafted him in the first round, outside linebacker, uh, Bennett. And and I knew a lot about that particular player, so I was asking him little questions just to see what – 
you know, just just double checking some things. Boom, 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 boom. He knew this player totally, totally well. So um, if he's if he's fibbing, amazing. And if not, um, I, I do believe he had the experience. He uh, said it took him quite some time to recover from this, just the mental shock of it. And uh, I don't hmm. think he likes spending any time in the woods anymore. He's done deer hunting. Wow. So the people that you are talking about are just everyday, normal people doing normal things, not out there looking for anything, and then they have these experiences. Exactly. Yes. Yep. That really is Pretty the amazing. best witness. Well, hey, Thomas, like, have you ever heard of an an encounter where a Sasquatch had gone after prey? Are you asking me? Yeah, Thomas. Uh, I've had witnesses describe Sasquatch, and, of course, I'm basically in the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada here. I've had witness accounts of Sasquatch observed killing small game, rabbits, raccoons, things like that, and, of course, fish. I have no of no reliable account where someone has watched a Sasquatch kill large game, deer, moose, etc. However, mm-hmm. they have been seen to scavenge and steal larger dead animals that are already dead. Hmm. Now, in That's my real interesting. yeah, and in my opinion, and I'm only expressing my opinion. If they do hunt large game, I don't believe they do it as a force of habit. They're undoubtedly strong enough to do it, intelligent enough to do it, but they don't seem to be naturally equipped to do it. What I mean by that is claws, fangs, etc. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so if it is, it's probably a, a case of snatch and grab anything they can get. Which is probably why, if the Sasquatch does indeed exist, there may be one for every 500 bears in any given area. And it's a rather rare creature and very reclusive, shy, retiring, yields the ground to the first intruder. And that, above everything else, is the key to their success. Yeah. Sounds about exactly like what I've heard as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, Dan... um, you forwarded us a, a number of witness drawings. Yes, I did. And there's a series of three that I assume are from one incident. This is one you sent three drawings of to me. Okay, Dan. good. You one is close to the face, and one is from the full body, and one is from profile. Yeah, I'll be glad to talk about that. Okay, now could you give us some details on 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 these three in particular? Yes. Like when and where did that happen? You don't have to reveal the witness's name, but just give an initial or something. Sure. Uh, first of all, I don't have the report in front of my face right now. That's I fine. do have. I do have, and I'm looking for it right now. The Washington. Vocal deer. I call it the Washington Vocal Deer Chase. It is report forty-two four four eight, and it's, it was backlit, and so the observer uh, drew, the witness drew these illustrations. In exchange, 
with uh, Scott, I believe it's Scott Taylor, uh, one of the BFRO uh, researchers. And I haven't talked to Scott. I was open to before we talk here. But anyway, what's interesting is he was with about 20 feet from this in a sports car. And apparently it ran across the road chasing a deer. Now, I, who knows? I wasn't there. But I can say that he described it. And he described it as a human-looking face with no chin, with a big brow. And because it had sparse, sparse hair, it was backlit. And so he was able to see the roundness of the skull. And it wasn't wow. like a cone shape or whatever like that. But the hair made it look that way some. So that was interesting. Um, right. I believe it was approximately eight feet in height, according to the observer. And he said that, and I'm looking for this now, um, that he, uh, oh, anyway, Julie, I had sent you a word series that it, it said three things to him, kind of yelled back. And it was, and the last one was kind of like, huh, or something like that. And so it basically grunted to him. And uh, there was also some sort of high hand signal to it. He had an observation of about a minute, but he didn't time it, so who knows. And uh, it was just one of those, one, two, three, four, five, a minute, it's over, it all happened, there it is. And uh, I don't really have anything other than just anything else to say about it, except that the illustrations are real interesting, and uh, mm -hmm. this may, may well be an older male. And he may well have been chasing a deer, but I, I don't certainly know that for sure, but a deer was involved in the observations. So that's what I got, Thomas. Okay, Dan, do you recall where in the part of the country and what part of the country this happened and when? Yeah, I don't know exactly when. I, I can I can get back to you on that for sure. And I do know it was Grays Harbor, Washington. Gray Harbor County, Washington State, okay. Yes, sir. Yep. And again, that would be, uh, that's the number 42448, which is pretty darn interesting. So Yeah, that, that um, the drawing of the, the face, to me, it looked um, almost like, like an older Native American Indian man. Yes. Yes. Doesn't this, isn't it amazing, all these variations of looks? And now, of course, we've got the Internet, and so everybody can copy everybody. But I think the pre-Internet information is so valuable because it would be many, many more isolated cases where maybe there wouldn't be anywhere near the influence that we have now, you know, mm -hmm. sociopolitics and whatever. So, Dan, you, you mentioned that backlighting, he was able to see the curvature of the skull. Was this at night? This was, uh, the sun was up. And okay. if I recall correctly, it was late afternoon, but don't quote okay. me on that. Yep. But it, to me, out of all the reports out there, this is one of the more interesting ones, just because of the fact that the fellow had a daytime, 20-foot-long, mm -hmm. one-minute look with mm. an interaction where he and it 
actually I apparently what he did was he waved to it. And then he got a threatening grin, of course when primates show their teeth, that's a stress signal and that's what it did. And it had black eyes. By the way. Okay, did you did you say he saw it from inside a car? Yes. So he it was, it was a roadside sighting somewhere? Yes. Yes. Okay. I believe the deer ran across the road, and I I don't know exactly. You know, we'd have to, we'd have to isolate on the report again. So, mm-hmm. but I did want to I, I did want to point out that particular report so people could read it if they wanted to because I thought it was one of the more outstanding uh, descriptive situations that we have to potentially learn from or start asking questions about. Oh, Roger, that do you recall if it was a recent one? Or are we talking about something that happened back in the nineties, eighties, or before? I think it was two thousand something. Okay. And unfortunately, I didn't. I could actually bring that up. Um, mm-hmm. We can look at it. Uh, yeah. So, so the he could tell from the lighting that he literally could see the shape of the head. Um, you know, versus a lot of people when they they see these things, they really don't mention anything about you know like really being able to see the shape of the head because of all the hair. But you're saying right. that it look like the typical cone-head-shaped uh, creature that a lot of people report seeing. It was more rounded from what I could see in the... Yeah, the... that's it exactly. That's it exactly. And that was... Uh, I'm going to see if I can bring that up and give you a little bit more detail. Um, you mean just right. a second? Sure. Take time. Yeah. Here we go. Motorist has a close daylight sighting. And it was 2013. Uh, That was when it was submitted. And Washington, Grays Arbor County, quarter mile past the Iron Bridge heading toward Ocean Shores and Route 109. And he was basically, a deer ran across the road heading south about an eighth of a mile ahead of me. From experience, I know that if one deer crosses the road, there's a good chance another is right behind it. And uh, I come to a complete stop because here comes this guy that makes it across the road in three strides at a dead run. What the H am I looking at? Mm -hmm. It was a male, no question about that. Genitalia was obvious. Uh, Stops at the roadside berm, turns around and looks right at me. Gives me a grin, clearly a threat. Turned back around and vanished into a roadside brush. And so we got to see this thing up close and personal. Um, his window was down. He was no more than 20 feet from him. Face was human looking, no chin. Had somewhat of a heavy brow ridge. Nose was a human nose, more European than African looking. And the skin was gray, as was his hair. And he had more or less human teeth, yellow, and in terrible condition. When he ran, his palms were down, not thumbs up like us. And when he stood, his palms faced back rather than thumbs forward like a person. Arms looked a bit longer than human, but not more than half a hand length or so. Um, it was around 1 in the afternoon. I was looking south at him and could see the shape of his head through the hair in the sun. The hair sticks way up, makes him look like he's got a pointy head, but really the shape of the head is human. My guess, and it's only a guess, he's about seven to eight feet tall. 
I didn't have time to take a picture. It all happened so quickly. Uh, an evaluation of the report, Scott Taylor writes uh, that uh, the deer was running full out speed. The witness said he's hunted enough knowing a deer's running like that. There's something chasing it. And as he slowed down to avoid hitting whatever that might be, this large bipedal creature ran across the road very close in front of him. And uh, well, let's see, the, the interesting part regarding the what he did was he, uh, he was in a 1951 MG sports car. He made a little hand wave and said, hi. This is when the creature pulled its lips back in a bare teeth threat expression, yelled what sounded like the words, shia, hoa, ha. And the witness said that the creature was very loud and he could feel a vibration as he yelled at him. It made a palms down, shoo, go away, Chester, a couple of times, and then the helicopter turned away and disappeared into the brush. And that's what we've got, chipped and yellow teeth. Fascinating. Yeah. In an area that's known for reports. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. About that. What? One of the extreme things that I found interesting, look at the leg length on I know. the whole picture. That's like a short torso, really elongated leg individual, plus almost well, two arms. Another interesting thing is the legs below the knee seem to be much longer than the portion of the leg above the knee to the torso. That as well. So that brings forth... What is the individual variation on these guys? I mean, with human beings, Homo sapiens, we see I'm a I'm like built like a fullback. When I sit down, I'm as tall as a typical six footer, but I'm only five eight, so I'm short legged. And other people can be very long legged, and uh, <laughs> you know, so we've got some variation in the way we're built, and no doubt they probably do too. You wonder what's average, and you wonder what extremes are, so. But they, they certainly seem to be able to to leap and jump and run these fences real well. Which right. Brings me I've, I've heard a lot reports. of people tell me that they when they observe them moving very quickly, it's almost like they were gliding, not running. Does that make sense? Yeah. Have you heard that? I've heard it. I can't visualize it. I'd love to see it. Well, we, uh, well, the Patterson-Gimlin film is true. We have. they basically described as a uh, cross-country ski-type walk. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. And just to clarify what I said before about them not killing large game, I just don't think they make a habit of it because if they did, I think we'd have ranchers and farmers complaining about lost livestock every year. That's not happening. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. It's almost mm -hmm. like you don't see their work too much. Every once in a while we get a deer up a tree or we get, uh, I think one of the biologists had mentioned he found like a 500-pound um, steer up a tree. and mm -hmm. But those are relatively, really rare. You know, yeah. cougar, cougar try to bury the prey. So um, who knows? But it's, it's huh. certainly not happening each and every location, you know. But what we are finding is one of the character characteristics associated with the predator kills are twisted necks mm -hmm. sometimes and also twisted legs. And it's been suggested to me that if they want fresh meat, they can wound a deer, make it immobile, 
and it'll be around a while, you know, which mm-hmm. doesn't sound very nice at all. But uh, mm-hmm. that's something they may be doing. In uh, Dr. Robert Alley's book, Green Coast Sasquatch, there's a wonderful account of some guys that killed a black bear. That's not a wonderful account. But anyway, they'd wounded it, and they decided we're coming back in daylight. So they did. They couldn't find it. And they couldn't find it. And they couldn't find it. Somewhere along the lines, they were on the edge of some uh, mossy areas. And one of the guys kind of kicked his boot into the moss. And son of a gun, it was buried in moss. So, But again, Thomas, there's an example of one maybe taking a wounded or or already dead animal. And Correct. Correct. And if we, mm-hmm. and and if I remember... Uh, well-known case I looked into in Sundry, Alberta. A moose hunter shot a moose, knocked it down. Moose got up. He hadn't killed it and started to wander off. And the alleged Sasquatch came out of the tree, looked in the direction of the hunter, looked after the moose, and started going after the moose. Mm. Later on, when he was circling, trying to find his moose, and believe it or not, he always claimed his first priority was the moose, not the Sasquatch. Sure. <laughs> saw the thing looking at him, and it took off, and he fired in its direction, but it doesn't know if he hit it or not. Yeah. But he never well, found the mean, moose. <laughs> no? Yeah, really? Yeah. You wouldn't think that'd be something hard to find, either. No. You know, with, the, with the mass. Yeah. So so that's amazing. Mm-hmm. When I got into all this stuff, one of the things that really got me interested was the behavioral accounts and the physical accounts that people would ascribe to them. And you can read about that in John Green's books or or a number of others. And, and there was one account that especially caught my attention, a couple of them. And one of them was this fellow was, it was a fresh snow. And this guy was up in the mountains above the town in either the Rockies or the Pacific Northwest. And he said... He ran into barefoot tracks, and it didn't make sense because it had a big toe. It wasn't bear tracks, and he followed the tracks, and these tracks led to a gully, and the gully on one side was higher than the starting point, in other words, where he was, and the tracks leaped the gully and landed easily on the other side. And he worked his way over there and found them and continued to follow them. And uh, the comments he had was he was just shocked and amazed that something with such big tracks could leap such a distance and so high. So that was one of the first reports that really caught my attention and made me think, you know, this is... I I know the one you're talking about. was about a 12-foot wide gully, yeah. Yeah, 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 perfect. Yeah, that's it. That was one when I was a youngster. That was one of the <laughs> that was one of the ones that caught my attention. Mm-hmm. And then then there was that report in the that ended up in the magazine, and people kind of thought, well, he's just looking for attention, or it's just another fantastic story. But apparently, apparently the guys called the author of this particular story or claim. And they started exchanging, and he had simply stated he found tracks on the mountains, he followed the tracks, 
And as he followed the tracks, it went around in a big circle, and here it was watching him. And it had its arms laid out like somebody who was standing behind, a, you know, logs or big desk or anything you can visualize where you're just leaned up against it, and your, your chin and your arms, just looking at the hunter. And he said, we started having a little bit of a stare down. All of a sudden, this thing's head came up, and it started to almost shake. And then it just vocalized some sort of half-human scream that was just shocking and amazing and combined with, you know, probably roar or whatever. And uh, it just sounded to me like there was another example of what very well could be. So have you got any vocals like that, Thomas? I've heard a lot of strange sounds that I can't identify. But I've also heard sounds that I would have thought may have been Sasquatch in origin just to later on find out they were of coyote in origin, and I thought I knew every sound a coyote made. (laughs) And this is something completely new. So my opinion on sounds, a sound in the woods or a sound in the dark, maybe, but there could be other explanations for it. I mean, totally agree. such a variety of sounds, they don't sound anything like the Disney nature films we grew up with. I mean, uh, there's such a, a large selection of noises. Unless you saw what did it, it's guesswork. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's. Uh, I'll give you an example here. I was in uh, Indiana, uh, probably '02, and there were five families that were describing Sasquatches, and so I interviewed them all. Stayed with a few, and hung out. And by the time I got done, I was pretty saturated with all this, and I hadn't found anything. And uh, on one hand, some of the landowners were telling me, don't go out there. And others were saying, yeah, why aren't you out there? And so it became almost controversial to even work with them. So I found I did better just working alone. And I started doing that. At the end, when I was ready to go, after five days, they said, you need to talk to the mushroom hunter guy. So I did. He told me an interesting story. He said, well, you know, there was a large number of these things concentrating up on the hill last month. Of course, I'd missed it. And they'd always come down, and then they'd go over and they'd cross into the fields to eat the soybeans. Well, one day, soybean hunter harvested, and they came down, and they were just having a fit. Well, anyway, they all dispersed two, and these two, one of them stayed in the ravine at the bottom, the other one was up on the hill. And they were literally yelling at each other back and forth, and it seemed very frustrating for them. Now, I don't know anything about this. I'm just repeating a claim. So anyway, uh, the guy starts to describe to me what he heard. And at the time, it was just too much for me. I'm like, yeah, right, sure, okay, right. And then I drive back to Wisconsin. Now it's 10 months later. I'm working with tribal police and working with some other people in Minnesota and Wisconsin and some some of the uh, the native territories and on a Cumberland area report. And I end up talking to a guy who was a boyfriend of one of the gals that was on the reservation. And he told me, he said, you know, one night I, me and my nephew were sitting here uh, in the tent. And we were playing cards, and I went out and tapped some wood. And, and 
when it was just starting to get daybreak, but not quite, there was some talk. I heard talk. Couldn't believe it. And there was talk being returned on the other side of the field. And, there, and I'm like, what in the world? So he unzips the tent and he goes out, and all of a sudden it changes the whistles. And he gets a high-pitched monotone whistle from one end, and it's returned by the other. And so I asked him, I said, what did it sound like? And by golly, if it wasn't close and didn't come close to matching what the guy in Indiana had said. So that's kind of what got my ear started on that. I can't prove or claim anything, but it was interesting. It was very Sierra sound like, kind of a little bit of that. What's that? And they call that chatter, samurai chatter, or something like that. He, Samur- samurai well, chatter. Yeah. Describing that. Yep. yep. And uh, that's pretty much what it was like. And so it caught my ear, made me think, and that's what we're looking for. And we haven't found a whole lot of it, hardly any. We might have got got some down in Missouri. And Dr. Scott Nelson's got a clip right now that he's working on. So we're looking hmm. to see. So. Um, whether whether language or whether vocals or or what to be determined, no doubt. So right. that was an interesting one. That certainly caught my attention. We definitely have to keep us posted about what Scott says about the audio that you've turned over to him. Oh, certainly, certainly. And that's that's Shane's puppies. So you'll be they're, they're they're hoping they can collect more this week, actually. So we'll see. Um, quite interesting. Well, we're, we're kind of getting short on time here. Um, Thomas, is there anything you wanted to to ask about anything that he has said um, to get more detail on or anything? Well, Thomas, since we're almost out of time, I'd just like to know what the immediate future holds for Dan and his research. Okay. A network like crazy get myself physically to the locations where I can experience some of the things people claim and report to people like you, Thomas, and Julie, and everybody else that's interested, uh, just so we can all share and learn more. Obviously, we're looking for more documentation. I'm, I'm trying to study Homo sapiens' feet so that maybe I've got more clues on differentiating potential immature Sasquatch prints. Um there's a, I, that's an area that I'm not particularly strong on that I need to make a strength. And uh, working more with witnesses and illustrations and recording as much wildlife as, as many places as I can. So, Would you make a vow right here, Dan, to always stick to the facts and never deviate from the facts? Each and every time, sir. Yes. Yeah. I love uh, it. Each and every time. <laughs> Absolutely. And, Dan, I just love the the no-nonsense approach that you have, you know, because you're saying, as you're telling these things, you're saying, you know, allegedly this happened, uh, if that happened. You know, some people get a little bit overexcited about the whole thing and tell it like it's gospel. And I appreciate your... um, you know, your honesty with saying, hey, I wasn't there, I don't know, but this is what was reported. Well, certainly, and thank you. Thank you. 
the uh, I don't know the physicality that these things seem to have intrigues the heck out of me. And so, for mm-hmm. example, Suzanne Ferencik's, uh observation of the of the one that I uh, drew for her um, that needs to be refined more. But <laughs> it's, it, oh it's, yeah, that one I sent that to Thomas. Um, you remember yeah, Suzanne? We had her on the show, Thomas, and she was talking about what she saw jump across the road in front of her in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it looked like to her. 240 feet out and seven feet off the ground. I had just talked to another fella who uh, in Georgia had seen something clear uh, a road, and this one leaped horizontally. He said this was – it jumped off a seven-and-a-half-foot embankment, and it was up to 12 feet in the air. And uh, had it's uh, – Basically, it just leaped horizontally. And I've got a buddy of mine who saw something he can't identify. Didn't have a tail. Kind of built like a wolf, but yet we don't really have wolves in southwestern Wisconsin. It could have been. Could have been a koi dog. Who knows? But no tail. And uh, turned its head away. So we couldn't get an identification from the head. And it also was seven feet off the ground and uh, um, about where your lights start to tail off when your vehicle lights up the road, that's the distance away it was. And it was just one, two, three gone. And so who who knows what people are seeing in the shadows. Right. right? So uh, there, there there is another uh, report that I was going to touch base with. And that yeah, was go ahead. A, and that was with the, with the association of, like, B. Mills, for example. She saw Sasquatch, uh, or what we believe is a Sasquatch, standing real close to white-tailed deer. Well, um, I have a report from Georgia where the gal and her friend both saw a doe walk out across the road. Behind the doe, fawn. Behind that, something unidentified that was huge. Also, turning its head away from the car lights, and behind it, what appeared to be some sort of little monkey. So my question is, like people, is it possible some of these big fellas are befriending juvenile animals, whether livestock, whether fawns, whether coyote cubs, pups, um, you know, cougar kittens, bobcat kittens, who knows. But there are a few reports of them running with other animals, and that always intrigues me, so I'll be looking toward more information on that as well. So, uh I have a friend from Kentucky. He got a report from a friend who said that guy was walking down into this valley and there were fawns all over. He didn't even see any adult deer. He just couldn't understand the density of all these fawns. Well, he got vocalizations and he got things thrown at him. So just there's there's no evidence. There's no Nothing there that tells us exactly what happened, but it certainly promotes a lot of questions. So I'll be following up reports like that in the yeah. future, too. Well, you know, I've, I've heard um, – I've actually heard a story about a Sasquatch that was that was seen – this was in Ohio, and it had two dogs with it, and it was just – like the dogs are circling it, and you know, it wasn't like going after the dogs or anything. And mm-hmm. I was like, "What?" So I, I, you're not crazy. I've heard that before. Different <laughs> things like I'm that. I'm glad. So. I'm glad. 
One one of the families that I used to work with out of the Indiana group, my grandmother would pick up the phone call, and she would get friendly with the uh, uh, landowners, and they would start talking about some of the things that were happening privately behind the scenes. And one of them was this particular big black Sasquatch that would kick the stock. But it wouldn't kick him hard. It would just be messing with it. And the dog would be following it around. And it would come back out of the woods smelling really badly. So who knows? But if oh, there is wow. a significant amount of intelligence there, and plus not everybody likes dogs. Some people do. And are they as variable as we are in our likes and dislikes of different food items, uh, you know, and, and and things like uh, everything from colors to pets to whatever. So lots of questions, and we've only got a fragment of information, and it, it, I'm just keeping it fun. Well, yeah, and you know, the thing is, um, who knows? These things, if they do exist, have to be extremely intelligent to be able to avoid us like they do, Okay. That's something that I feel, that's my opinion. They'd have to be highly intelligent, very skilled at uh, camouflaging themselves in the presence of people and, you know, out in the woods. I People have told me before, they're like, you know, you could have walked right past one if it was standing there camouflaging itself, and you'd never, you'd never know it if it didn't want you to know it. And that's kind of creepy. <laughs> We we, we probably all have, you know, somewhere along the lines. Oh, the the one that I didn't mention was I was at that private property I've been monitoring, and this was quite a few years ago, uh, and a coyote cat pack ran by. And I'm sitting there in the dark, happy, excited that I got the recordings because they were about the best I've ever had. All of a sudden, I heard the landowner sneeze behind me. I don't know that I brought that up in the first interview with you guys, but uh, I'm sitting there thinking, well, what is she doing up? And I turn and look toward the house, and it's all dark. And the vocal came from up in the air. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what are my options? Trespasser, come in in the dark. They found his way there without making any noise. Highly doubted, I suppose possible. Was it a coyote? How to get up in the air? I don't think that's the case. Was it a cougar following the coyote? Doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. Or was it target species? Don't know. I sat there for 45 minutes waiting for a change of pace, maybe a, a growl or a, or a uh, you know shift in weight or or another sneeze or any type of total silence for 45 minutes. Finally, I just shut everything down, packed up, and walked off and said, thank you. Let's do it again. That's amazing. So there are mysteries. That's for sure. Well, Dan, I'll tell you, that was interesting stories, and um, it just gives you a lot of food for thought, you know. Like you said, the different characteristics and different descriptions and I don't know. It's never a dull moment in this field. I say, I, I tell you, finding out new things all the time. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of wondering why the mechanical lady hasn't cut us off yet because we've gone almost ten minutes overtime here. <laughs> yeah, we're fine. We're fine. Um, 
But yeah, Dan, I tell you what, that that's awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you coming back and sharing that with us. The, these sure. uh, encounter stories, very cool. And I'm going to put some of the stuff that you sent me, whatever you okay me to share in the slideshow, I will put in the slideshow so our listeners can take a look at that as they're watching the show. Certainly. And the one item that's especially noted is uh, Sibylla Irwin, of course. Her and Alex uh, do incredible work. Uh, Sibylla had a chance to be on the telephone with a fella, or actually a couple of researchers out of Oklahoma. And they were looking at a six-footer behind a tree peek out and look at them. She had them on the phone, so she was able to get the exact description of what they were seeing live. And wow, and that's, that's the one you sent me. And, and that's the illustration, that, yeah, that's reddish that I sent you. She has her copyright in the bottom of that. Oh, wow. Would you just repeat I, her name? I, I'll more? ask her if I can share that on the slideshow. Sure, sure. I can send her a note, too. Okay, uh, cool. Thomas, basically, she was just on the phone with this fella, and he was looking at one, and so he was able to give her the precise descriptions that he saw. Okay. What's, so what's, her, was, what's her name again? Sibylla Irwin, and she's the illustrator for the BFRO. Fantastic gal who's now in Texas. Mm. Yeah, she does really good work. I've seen a lot of her um, creations of what people say that they saw, and a lot of that's variable as well. So sure. she she doesn't draw I, the same figure twice. Yeah, it's uh, no, she's done amazing things, and she's had some experiences too. So you'd have to talk to her about what those are. Yeah, exactly. but I know she's. Uh, She's intrigued by this as we all are, and she has the capability of bringing it to life. So, well, well Dan, I appreciate you being on the show again. I know you're a busy person and taking your time out. And Thomas, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to mention that one thing I noticed about her drawing, which is excellent. It's almost like a painting. Mm-hmm. It's much. It's much more primate-like in appearance than compared to the other witness descriptions we were hearing in the drawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, agreed. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It, it does. It does uh, <laughs> make you wonder what the actual variabi- variability is on these fellas and gals. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be continued fun to try to get significant information, repeat observations, and and uh, situations where more than one observer was able to make the observation. So that's crazy. And Thomas, I'll be I'll be in touch as we go as well. I'm, I'm yeah, really definitely. About everything everything you do, and uh, looking forward to communicate with both communicating with both of you on a regular basis. So thank you. Roger that, Dan. Absolutely, and we'll definitely be in touch and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, now now I'm going to be thinking about all the stories that you told us. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking <laughs> about good. that after the show. And, it's like, uh, and by the way, okay. I, will li- I will be live at uh, with Alex Evans and mine at uh, B. Mills's Hocking Hills uh, Bigfoot Festival in August. 
five and six, I believe it is, four and five or five and six. And uh, she'll be promoting that as we go. And I just want awesome. to give her a shout. And a big shout to uh, her friend Suzanne and mine as well, simply because she's been very open with her observations and helping me trying to create uh, precisely what she saw. I haven't got quite mm-hmm. I haven't quite got it down exactly. The feet are too big in the last illustration, but we're working on it. So Well fantastic. Yeah, definite shout out to to everyone that you mentioned and uh I know they're good supporters of the show, so but um show forty is in the books and we will be back next month with Todd Prescott, who does the archiving of Sasquatch. Uh, history, Bigfoot stuff, uh, you know, he's got so much um, archives and stories to tell, so that, that'll be interesting to to have Todd on for next month. But Again, Dan, thank you so much for your time, being so gracious. And, Thomas, I will talk to you next month. Roger that. And thank, thank you, you all for listening. Thanks again, Julie. You're welcome. And join us again next month.